podcast one production. Hello and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the unknown stories behind the food that we all love. My name's Gary Megan and on this episode, I talk to Pauline Yao, who many people would know from the first season of MasterChef. Since leaving MasterChef, she's done multiple TV shows, written multiple books, has started her own business, which now in the Adelaide markets is an absolute must-go-to, which is Jam Face, and her own product line. Gee, will this woman ever stop? I hope not, and I hope you enjoy my chat. Where did your love of food begin, and how has it shaped your view of the world. Whoa, heavy. <laughs> Told you I was going to get straight into it. Love of food, I think, happened osmotically when I was young, growing up in Malaysia. It is definitely a foodie country, having um, three cultures that have lived together for eons. So we've got the Malays, which are the you know local culture, and then the Chinese and the Indians who have lived alongside the Malays. And we have the most purest form of fusion you can you can imagine. <laughs> it is like, um, you know, there's mamak, which is Indian and Malay, and then there's nyonya, which is the Malay and the Chinese. And uh, mum sent me this cartoon the other day. It's so hilarious. And it's... Um, and it's basically like when you go to a hawker store, so many people actually will speak four languages in one sentence. I never so knew they'll that. go, they'll go, Anne, can you tapao, which means, which is Chinese, <laughs> which is in Chinese, can you please take away that and then whatever that is, or Tichanai, which is like, you know, Malay. So it's, like, it's quite funny that we, we actually understand all each other's sort of slang and lingo. So it's, anyway, I grew up in that culture, got dragged through wet markets um, since I was like, yay, hi, hated it because it stank. Yeah, smelly stuff. <laughs> smelly stuff. Um, and so just being around that, and it's, it's, that's what you do for recreation there. You know, people don't really, um, you know, Australia is very sort of like sport orientated and, uh, you know, uh, but there you kind of eat for recreation, like. After one meal, think about what you're going to eat for your next meal. Sounds perfect. I don't know what part of Australia you live in, but I eat for recreation. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your Australia might look a bit different to mine. Look, I get it. It's all very sporty and everything. But So it, your earliest memories, mm. you know, obviously that wet market. I mean, you yeah. know, what do you remember your uh, mum cooking or something that stands out in your mind? Um, well... What stands in my mind? Lots of uh, lots of delicious food laced with the funk of open drains. <laughs> you know, delicious. and I think that's yeah. You know, like you, you, it's it's always destination stuff. So you'll drive for ages into the whoop whoops. You know, to go to the best uh, chili crab stall. And the thing that's really cool about Malaysian food, I think, it is truly, truly like, um, you know. It's it's real democratic food in that you'll see a Merc puck next to a bike next to a, <laughs> you know, um, and it's it's the people are there not to be seen. It's purely for the food. So lots of memories of that, and then um, I remember lots of uh, scrambling for change because we back in the day, like the hawkers used to ride around the neighbourhoods for late night supper. And you just hear ding, ding down the street, scramble for change, run outside, buy your midnight kwe tiao. It's a lot of that. Um, and then at home, it was actually my great auntie Kim. So she's kind of like my other mum. And I used to come home to her and she really 
taught me a lot about eating as well as cooking. So mum was very impatient with me in the kitchen, didn't like me being in there. Whereas my auntie Kim would be, you know, would let me help her with, uh, you know, picking herbs and, and she was a, um, she's a staunch Buddhist. So she, she, she taught me how to eat very simply and how to draw incredible amount of flavor out of nothing. She'd, she'd have three ingredients and, you know, make this delicious meal. So um, that's what I taught from her, like, you know, brevity with food. Can you remember something that she cooked? Yeah, one of my favourite things uh, that she makes is just this steamed tofu with a brown fermented soybean with a little bit of fried ginger on top, a little bit of mm. ch- chilli, um, soy sauce and a pinch of sugar. So simple. Sounds delicious. Yeah. And it's just this really kind of, it's it's very kind of austere way of eating, but really delicious. Like, you, you know, it's, it's not just me thinking that because I have memories of it. It's just a really nice. Is your auntie here now or is she still around yeah. or is she? Okay. Yeah. She so lives with mum. So when you, th- mm. when you think back about her is the one thing, not about the food, but about her is the one thing that sticks in your mind back then versus what she is now or? It's a funny thing. When I... When I do certain things, like when I make food, I can actually see her in my hands. Mm. The way she, um, the way she, she has a lot of patience with food. She'll just sit there and sort out, you know, there's a, there's a pyramid rice dish that we do. It's called zung. It's for, um, I'm really terrible. I'm a terrible Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to know everything. We watch TV. We don't know how it works. (laughs) Some okay. sort of harvest autumn thing. Um, and it's this dung, it's this rice pyramids that are stuffed with all sorts of goodies. And there's one of them that's a sweet one. And you actually have to sort out grains of rice because the, the stuff that you buy in bags is slightly got um, contaminated with other types of rice. And she'll just sit there and sort rice, so individual grains of rice. So I, I learnt a lot of that patience for detail from her, um, but also from mum. Mum's a real perfectionist, so I learnt... I learn a lot of that from her and my passion for baking comes from mum. Mm. She will sit there, she will she will bake something repeatedly for five days in a row and make us eat until she gets it right. <laughs> that is brilliant. I want to get back to the hands. You know when you say, because you, you just had that moment there where you, you said, I see her in my hands mm. when you're doing something and I get the rice. That's a lovely way of putting it. Is there something else? Yeah, she, um, I get quite emotional talking about her because she, she sacrificed a lot for, um, my brother and I, she was, she's actually mum's auntie. She's actually my great auntie. She was adopted and back in the day, she was actually betrothed to one of my grandfather's brothers at the time. And of course they grew up together as siblings, so nothing happened. And then she came to live with us and she kind of didn't have a life of her own. She came and treated my brother and I like her children. Mum and dad uh, were busy working. Mum went straight back to work when she had us. And so she was like a um, like a nanny, grandma kind of figure for us. So I grew up with kind of two matriarchs in the family. And she, she was really kind of our main caregiver in a way. Like when we came home, we came home to her. Um, you know, she made our after-school snacks and... Um, she taught me a lot about, I have absorbed a lot of her sensibilities 
Yeah, so that's kind of what she was to me. But her, I think just um, with her, she, yeah, she, she knows how to, she's got that, what I call the non-a-touch, you know, you don't need much, just knows how to make beautiful food with nothing. And they're the ones that are the hardest to replicate, <laughs> I reckon, because I think it's the love and I think it's that thing of, um, I don't like to cook dishes that she makes because it's like, I like to play helpless child again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Oh, it's good because she's cooking for you. Yeah. You know, from a very generous and natural place, isn't it? That's yeah, what she's doing. Yeah, what kind yeah. of sensibilities have you adopted from her, do you think? I uh, just can't. She, she, wants, she wants for nothing except for us to be, you know, um, successful and at peace and happy with ourselves and be healthy. So she's very, she wants, she has very basic desires in life, being a Buddhist. Like whenever we give her presents, a week later, you just find it in someone else's house. <laughs> <laughs> she just has no desire for phys- for uh, material material things. Yeah. So um, I think valuing just you know uh, very basic elements of life. You know, um, the other thing that I I I get from her is she. You know, whenever I design a dish or I cook a dish, I always think of someone when I'm cooking it. I always think, oh man, I always think of you when I make my, my apple pie, actually. <laughs> I always think of you. Yeah, it's, um, the knuck- it's the knuckly kind of sugary lumps on it. That's what it is. <laughs> no, it's a very English combo, you know, um, yeah. cheese and apples. So, um, yeah, I always think of who might enjoy uh, what I'm cooking, who's, who's, who's in my life that would enjoy it. And she's always done that for me. So um, whenever I get go home, she'll, she'll always have cooked, you know, two or three of my favourite dishes, you know, um, at, at mum's. So that's... That's how love is expressed. It's not so much with uh, physical affection or even verbal. It's expressed through the food. So it's got that sort of currency, the food at home. What would you cook her? I like to cook her favourite dish is mussels in white wine. (laughs) (laughs) That's multicultural, isn't it? I know. How funny is that? She loves Western food, actually. And your mum? What'd you cook your mum? Mum eats anything. She's really she she um she loves butter. She's quite an Asian like that. So she loves she loves um she loves my be- she loves my palmier actually. That's her favourite thing. Yeah, that but I your palmier are good. <laughs> I like them too. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. She's got good taste. Your mum. Yeah. You were yeah. the runner-up in the first season of MasterChef, which was yes. you know when pe- when people ask me what was your favourite season, it's always the first one because it really? was really. Yeah, because it was unknown, it was yeah. exciting, it was different. No one unch- knew what to expect. All yeah. uncharted territory. All we uncharted all, territory. And we were all going through at the same time. Agre- you, you guys, us, the Agreed. producers, everything. And now, and now you and many others on Series 1 are kind of veterans of the business, let alone of that television program. What, what is the, the one memory that you have of that moment in your life? Do you have one? It was a very significant time in my life, I think. It because it was a pretty it was a pretty full on gutsy move to go on that show because it, it was such uncharted territory. And I had kind of just established myself as an artist and was actually starting to make okay money out of it and was getting a little bit of momentum in terms of attracting a bit of you know, publicity with my work and stuff. And to leave that stability I had worked so hard for on my own for five years and go on this thing, 
meant that I really wanted something out of it. And that was really um, to vent this newfound passion that I had um, that I had discovered with food. Because up till then, I had always taken it for granted. I'd had it in my life, yeah, through, you know, culturally. Um, inherited a lot of that from, yeah, my, my traditions and living in a really being brought up in Malaysia. But I started, had started to keep myself up at night thinking <clears throat> of weird combinations of ingredients I could put together and designing menus for an imaginary place that I didn't own. And I thought, I need to see if this is real, if this actually has stamina, or am I just going through a phase? And that's why I went on the show. And so that was a real moment of following my gut. I think that was like one of the main, a, a really big thing I learned from that, um, to follow my instinct and see, because uh, I was at a point in my life, I was like kind of had been divorced for a couple of years and I was forging all these new paths and really being true to, um, yeah, to following my, my gut. And so that was like a really formative moment for me as an adult at 35. <laughs> Bit of a worry. <laughs> And that makes me think about, I mean, Matt described you once as being the two things together, genius and mayhem. <laughs> I know, <laughs> and, and when I ask this question, I kind of know what the answer is, but I don't think the listeners maybe understand. How true is that in life in general for you? Um, yeah, no, my life is very chaotic because I, I, I really want to suck the marrow out of life. I'm greedy for life experience. So that invites a lot of chaos. So I've got, you know, my cafe, um, which is something I really want to do. It's so funny because all of you are like, don't do it, Poe. You've got it good. <laughs> you've, got the caf- you've got the books and the TV and your art. Like, just be happy. But I'm just one of those people that's not satisfied. You know, um, I have to learn for myself. I don't like to learn through, you know, advice. I'm very stubborn like that, you know, hence throwing myself off high places quite often when I was, you know, otherwise doing quite well when I was on MasterChef. Um, do, you, do you know what? I have to tell you, it was your bloody voice haunting Why? me. Because I remember there was an elimination challenge once um, and we actually got into quite a heated debate and you said, don't you want to, because you said, what are you doing here? What, what's, what's your deal? What's your caper? And I said, well, I want to write books. I think that's what I want to do. And you said, oh, what happens after you've written a book? And I says, well, I didn't become an artist to write, to, to paint one picture. And, um, and, um, and you said, don't you want to feel the hospitality of running your own place and blah, blah, blah. And I did, but I was too scared to talk about it on the show. I, I just thought I want to do it in my own time. And it just happened naturally, you know, like I, it, you know, five years, I kind of estimated that it would be about five years. And that's how long it took me to build up the courage to open my own place. And it was partly due to the fact that I was so pigeonholed into that Southeast Asian, that brand that I'd, that I'd, you know, set on the show. And you know what? Being on a show like that, it's actually useful to be stereotyped. It is actually a smart thing because right away people affiliate with you with something. And it was actually what my culinary journey was at the time. I, I really was interested in exploring and learning how to cook all those cultural cuisines that I'd grown up with. Um, but then I couldn't deny that my heart was utterly in baking because every time 
I bake something, I'm just jumping around the kitchen like an idiot, just <laughs> doing little jigs to myself and the dogs because I just love it that much. And when I eat, when I cook traditional food, I love it. it. It's in me. It comes really instinctively, but it just doesn't give me that sense of adventure that baking gives me because like with, and I think maybe it is just that thing of taking it for granted because I've grown up with it and I like to go home to eat that food. Whereas with baking, it's, there's just so much magic in it. You feel like Willy Wonka, you know, you just have very few basic ingredients, eggs, sugar, butter, flour, and you can create literally an infinity of things. It's, it's incredible to me. I love the alchemy. I often don't research things too deeply, very mm. often. I'm, that mm. guy, I'm just the guy walking around looking at stuff, right? I'm, I'm as well. I just look at stuff and I go, that's yeah. nice, or that's not nice. But then yeah. I, I read something about you, that, that you were part of the Mormon church, and I never knew that. And yeah. I, was, I was surprised. And I yeah. went, well, there's a thing I never knew. Yeah. How did you find yourself a part of that, and what was the journey? Uh, my family were in a little bit of a um, financial crisis. We had some small businesses and, you know, business just turned bad and um, and we were in a bit of a vulnerable position. We lost everything and the missionaries came knock- knocking and I was like just this nerdy Asian kid who had like no experience with opposite sex and these two cute American boys at the door selling us guard. Um, and <laughs> for the family, it was actually a really, um, it came at a time that we really needed that sort of social support because uh, we'd, we felt, we'd felt, you know, um, quite sort of ostracised by the family. And, you know, there were mistakes that we'd made, so it was rightly so. I'm not at all blaming them. Um, and yeah, we were in dire straits and we kind of needed that social network and the church were really amazing for us like that. Um, and it gave me kind of this, yeah, it gave us all this kind of safe haven, I guess. Hmm. I've never seen you as a particularly religious person, person, maybe spiritual. Mm. Yes. How, How do you think about it now? I'd say I'm agnostic now. I went through a stage where when I left the church, so I, I kind of just hit. I so hit, you're hedging your bets as no, an agnostic, aren't you? No, really? you know what it is? When I left the church, I went the extreme. So I went, oh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. But then I've realized that with life, if you're the polar opposite, it's, it's not, it's the same as the other side. Mm. It's just as unreasonable. Um, and I think to be sensible and for the world to attempt at some kind of peace, I think you have to be tolerant, which means you have to sit in the middle. And I and realist, both can't be proven either or disproven, the existence or a, or a lack of existence of a God. So I kind of feel, well, I'm open to the idea of some kind of energy out there because when I look at nature, I can't help but think, there's something out there that around that the maths, all the maths and physics around us is amazing. Like I look at a flower, a particular species, and I think every time that pops out of the ground, that's got five petals on it. <laughs> that is crazy. To me, that is amazing. It is. So amazing. I kind of uh, am filled with wonderment with things like that. And so I can't, I don't know, I can't. No. 
Can't so if two um, handsome American boys knocked on the door <laughs> with a copy of Guard, would you let them in? Now? Yeah. Yes, but I'd probably try to, you know, corrupt them with <laughs> my... So what was the change in your life that took you away from that? I just, philosophically, I just hit a wall. Uh, I, I went to uni, um, oh, I travelled. So out of the groups of, you know... <laughs> conservative family upbringing and uh and also religion i i went to canada <laughs> from australia you went to canada <laughs> no actually i went to utah first because i was actually thinking of um looking for a husband and why'd i'm you not go, even why, kidding why do you go looking for a husband in utah what's in utah because there's more mormons there <laughs> I forgot that. Yeah, it's in pickings when you're in a small community in right. Adelaide, right? It's a bit like... So you up stumps, went to Utah yeah, in search of a Mormon husband. Husband and found myself a lovely bikey boyfriend who was like excommunicated from the church. Pretty much everything that was like, if you if you could create everything that was the antithesis of what my my mum or my parents wanted for me, I found it in this guy called Scott. And I was talking about how I was locked across a non-alcoholic <laughs> bar, <laughs> Mormon-approved bar, um, in Provo, which is a university town. And um, so I was, yeah, I was scooting around on a on a Harley with him for a few weeks, and then ran out of money, and I had a working visa in in Canada, so I had to save up again and work to get more money. And as you know. Canada is a very liberated, liberal kind of country, and um, the I, the world just literally got my world got turned on its head. My first friend was trans. That's pretty not street smart. Uh, so she, you know, gave me some pepper spray and told me how to catch the subway, and yeah, she was amazing. And so, yeah, after that, I was like can't do this, can't say that this is wrong in the eyes of God. I couldn't accept that anymore. And when I got home, I was pretty troubled, actually. I didn't know what to do because my family just sort of expected me to slot straight back into church life. And I was really troubled. Mm. So what happened then? Went back to church, felt really out of sorts, didn't really know how to deal with it actually thought I wanted to go back to Provo and try and go to a Mormon university there. And, uh, and why would you do that? Uh, I was trying to, I was trying to shoehorn myself into the whole idea of it. (laughs) You know, I can do this. I I hadn't divorced myself completely from it. I'd accepted that I was an evil person that had to make myself right. That was kind of the stage I was at. Punish yourself. Hmm. And then um, what happened was I met my first husband. <laughs> so this is in Australia? <laughs> yeah, in Australia. Um, and we, we, our friendship grew out of needing a mate to just philosophically explore not being in the church with. And we used to just sit for hours just talking about, um, talking about ideas actually, like evolution and like, yeah, just ideas, ideas, philosophical ideas. And then we got married and we left the church together. Big thing. Did it Big. affect your relationship with your families? Yes, very much so. They were very disappointed. I think they wanted to think that we'd just strayed from the fold because we were lazy, but we'd 
you know, we'd really thought very deeply about it. It was a very educated, very uh, considered decision that we'd made. So it was hard to get get that through to them for a while. I and think how, they wanted... and how did that show itself? How how did the relationship well, change? Um, they were very upset, and I think they thought <clears throat> that Matt had led me astray because uh, he's quite a sort of domineering personality. <laughs> um, but um, and I think they wanted to believe that, but it wasn't. I actually had a I, I had a very full on like rebellious. No, I wouldn't say it was rebellious. I, I you know I was a thinker. I wanted to explore the world and. Um, and I found this person to be able to do that with, which I really needed at the time. I felt really, really lost, very confused about how to, how to make my next move and kind of break out of the grip of the religion. And, and there was also that cultural element of saving face with the family, you know, not, not wanting to disappoint and disobeying your parents in, you know, Asian cultures is a big deal. Who did that affect most? Your mother or your father? My mum. Why? I think she just feared for me, I think. Feared that I was just going to go off the rails and, I don't know, become a crack addict. <laughs> Standing on street corners, like, I don't know. <laughs> so funny. They always seen, they've always seen me as this, like, massive rebel, but I wasn't. I was actually this really studious kid. and But to them, it was, you know, for their standards, I was a rebel. So, yeah, no, it was, it was hard at the beginning. So took, ha- took a long time. Took a long time to recover from that, I think. And and what was the point that it recovered? Do you remember? Do you remember when everything shifted back onto an even keel? I think when I got divorced and they saw this kind of really independent, stubborn, uh, well, capable person emerge because they saw that even without him I was like that, without Matt, and they they believed that, I could cope in the world. I think, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. And then obviously after MasterChef, that really, I think that really cemented in their heads I was going to be okay. Sounds like a weird thing to say about your parents, but yeah, I really feel like that was quite a big turning point for them to think, to know that I was capable. Yeah. Yeah. And what's it like now? It's great. It's really good. (laughs) Because what we see is, you know, certainly from watching you on television and your mum, and I've met you yeah. a few times now. Yeah, it's all very yeah. bubbly and positive. Yeah, we and do. Yeah, fun we do. And mm. cooking. Yeah, we do have a really good relationship now, mum with mum with mum and dad. Um, and it's it's not always been the case because of the, you know, when you move when when you're a migrant, it's that whole thing also of like the parents. Uh, being raised in those values, coming to a new country and then still wanting to raise the kids with the same values when, you know, they're torn between these two cultures, trying to fit in and trying to fit in at school and at home. So I really resented them for a long time for that. I found found that really hard because I wasn't really allowed to do a lot of things that most kids would be able to do to develop socially. And I think that's why a lot of those weird decisions, like, you know, being attracted to all the wrong people that, you know, early points in my life happened because I didn't know how to... I didn't know what a good man or a bad man was. Mm. Just anyone that was attracted to me was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Following the love. Would yeah. you do you think that you had some was it difficult or harrowing emotional periods through this through this time or when you were growing up like are there times where you look back and go wow. Uh probably leaving the church that w- that was hard. 
I, I felt a lot of like cultural guilt. That stuff is so heavy. I, I felt I couldn't. I found it really, really hard to get over. Um, yeah, a lot of guilt. But growing up was always hard too because even though I thought it was because I was a migrant and I'm sure it's, it was exacerbated by that, but I never was suffered from bullying or anything like that. I've always just felt kind of beamed in from somewhere else. I always say that. So I always feel this kind of aloneness. And growing up, I found that was tough. I just always felt like, you know, no one liked me or found me attractive or, yeah. So I had a lot of like confidence issues growing up. And really, to be completely honest, it was really only like in my, th- when I was like about 32, I started to go, oh, I'm all right. <laughs> you know, I can do stuff. Can't change how long my legs are. <laughs> <laughs> that surprises yeah. me because you've always mm. seen the opposite, even culturally, even though I <clears throat> understand very clearly and I understood clearly at the time that you coming on to MasterChef, your relationship even with... Uh, your heritage and your food seemed a bit clumsy. You yeah. Know, like, you, you know, you were trying yes. to discover stuff and I'd say, do you know how to make this? And you go, no. <laughs> like, you know, we, <laughs> we're thinking, right, she's going to cook the, like delicious Malaysian food or Nyonya food yeah. and then you wouldn't. Like, you get yeah. it wrong. Yeah. And so that was interesting for us. But then you've always seemed like you, you have a wonderful sense of humour that carries that uncomfortableness Mm. That's not even a word, but you know what I'm trying to say. Mm. That uncomfortable relationship with maybe your background or the fact that you're Asian and you break it down for everybody and you make us laugh. Like yeah. I've heard you talk about yellow fever and I hear you talk about, yeah, we all of us have got the fact that we eat rice in common. Is that how you've made sense of it all? Is that yeah? Are you is it because you detach from both cultures or is it be, and you feel like you've been beamed in or or do you think it's funny or is it? Um, I think I've just learnt to be okay with it and I think a sense of humour is the best way to go about it. And and then as you go through life, you realise there's like a million people out there that feel the same. There's a million migrants out there that grew up in exactly that same environment where the parents were like really strict, wanted them to grow up with the same values but then expected the kids to, you know, do well at school when they couldn't socially really fit in because the parents wouldn't let them go to sleepovers, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, I realised that that story, I started to let it come out and let it be exposed through humour because I know there's millions of people out there that relate to that story. It's not unique to me at all and that's a really lovely thing. Anything that can bring people together and make them feel less alone is a, it's a wonderful thing. You're just about to, I think I've seen that you, and probably by the time this goes out, it would have already been on, but you're launching a new exhibition of art. Is that right? Or am I? Am I? Am, I don't know. No? 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 Is it my imagination? <laughs> Maybe oh, it was no, no, no. No, I'm about to start, um, I'm about to launch a little website of my work. Ah. Yeah, because I was, um, I have been represented by galleries and have enjoyed it, but I'm kind of feeling, just like the cooking, uh, well, I'm finding it very hard, number one, to find huge sort of slabs of time to be able to paint solo exhibitions now. So I kind of um, started to feel really attracted to the notion of just practicing very honestly. So whatever I feel like painting, I just do it. I don't try and go, ooh, does that fit into the rhetoric? <laughs> um, will this fit into, uh, you know, um, is it cohesive with the rest of the works that are in the solo? <laughs> I kind of just go, I just feel like painting a dog. I'm just going to paint a dog today. 
<laughs> and it's been so lovely. It's just sort of made me fall in love with the whole process again because it's honest. And that's how I want food to be as well. That's that's how I cook as well. So do you have mm. a space for your art and a space – well, obviously you've got space for your food because mm. you've got a – a commercial premises. How, do, how, do the, how does the, the, the love of it and then mm. the, the business of it blend for you? You know, keeping these passions alive, if they're businesses too. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard and you would know that because, um, <clears throat> you know, when people come out of MasterChef, they have no idea. <laughs> Oh, you got this like no there is this amazing pantry, you know, in front of you. It's like there's no costings or, um, and just the sheer fact that what you think is good is not what the masses necessarily wants to eat. Like you think, oh my gosh, those apple pies are gonna fly out of there. No, no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> that day, only two people think that that apple pie is amazing. So you're just constantly trying to like, you know, guess like, you know, what people want and sh- and and I find that whole thing of because I've been an artist and had the luxury of you know dictating what I want to paint and what people want to see and expressing myself. It gets it, I find it really frustrating sometimes with food that it just doesn't translate, you know, on, on a commercial level, you know, mm. like um, it's just people are fickle. Um, but as time goes by, I'm getting more and more confidence in sticking to my guns and really getting people to understand what my brand is about. And so just, yeah, really sticking to the philosophy that I have. This is A Plate to Call Home. I'm Gary Megan. More from Poe after the break. How long have you been in with Jonathan now, with Jono? How long have you been ten, with Jonathan now? Ten, well, ten years because of the Ten show. years, of course, yeah. 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 Do you want to yeah. tell, do you wanna tell uh, yeah. the listeners? So, yeah, how did yeah. you, so how did you two meet? So Jono was a runner <laughs> on the show and on MasterChef. And, um, what does a runner mean? People don't know. Like, does he just like run around with <laughs> shorts <laughs> when on? He, actually, when I first <laughs> met him, he goes, I'm the runner. I go, what do you mean? Like you're a sprinter and you like to cook? <laughs> And he goes, no, no, I'm actually a runner. I'm like, oh, like a production runner. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, nothing really. I just thought, oh, I was, you know, a bit of a cute guy on set who's like a bit flirty with everyone. And um, and I just thought, you know, immediately a bit suspicious about him. Um, and I had a boyfriend at the time, actually. So, like, I didn't think anything of it. But then, um, yeah, there was just a few cute looks across the schoolyard, a.k.a. the um, MasterChef chef. <laughs> Um, yard and um, and then yeah, just after we we, we used to just exchange looks because we weren't allowed to fraternise, you know, because no. he's a staff member. Very strict. Um, very strict. So at lunchtime, there'd be a few little you know looks, and um, and then if I was lucky, he might shuttle us from the house to the kitchen that morning. <laughs> so it was quite a sort of traditional romance in that way. Like it was kind of forced into this very like cute. Um, old-fashioned kind of courtship. Yeah. yeah. And then... And MasterChef um, was your chaperone, essentially. Yes, yes. I quite like that. Yeah. So how did you get in touch with each other when the show finished? Was um, Who made the move? Oh, at, at the after party, it was just like... Oh, no, that's cheap. Couldn't don't, exchange... Don't want to know Couldn't that. exchange numbers <laughs> fast enough. Oh, no, no. There was no... There was none of that. Um, yeah, no, we just... <clears throat> Exchange numbers at the after party, and then John is a DJ and an actor, but he's never made things with his hands. And actually, for a long time, that really worried me because that's so much of who I am. What I love about life is creating, 
And um, but in the last couple of years, he's just uh, he he's built everything that we use for Jam Face. So we, um, the cafe, uh, we built together, me and him. And because we do so many pop-ups, he's always just build, creating these little Jam Face worlds for us and he just absolutely loves it. So he's turned into this amazing chippy. I, I like the fact that everything has got your stamp on it, yours and Jono's stamp on it. Yeah, I can't. I'm, I guess like that, that artist side of me can't. I can't get commercial ever. I'll never be success, commercially successful because I'm too invested. I, I need, it needs to mean, everything needs to mean something to me. And if it doesn't, I'm happy to walk away from it. Mm. But it also makes it very hard on me, like mentally. <laughs> it makes me mental. <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm too invested. Like I care so much about everything. Can't let go, you know, obsessive. So yeah, that, that takes its toll on Jono. <laughs> when, when are you at your happiest? I love uh, watching movies with Jono on the couch, just eating junk food, takeaway. It's just like complete relaxation. Don't have to think about it. Just be a jellyfish on the couch. Leave my brain at the door. Um, when I'm in the garden, when I'm cooking, when I'm painting, and I identified this when I was at a very young age, mainly through baking and drawing, I feel really okay with myself. There's no self-consciousness. I just disappear and I just get sucked into this vortex where I feel no con- no self-consciousness about the way I look or what other people think. And there's this amazing feeling of... Um, you kind of feel like a god in your own little world because you're creating something out of nothing, you know, a blank page and you're creating this three-dimensional form or you've got these meagre ingredients that you turn into something that's amazingly delicious and beautiful to look at. So, um, yeah, I feel it gives me a great sense of purpose and belonging in the world. So that's, that's when I know everything's okay. And whenever I'm feeling really stressed out in my life, it's because I haven't done any of those things in a long time because I was just running around you know, um, running the business and, you know, being manic and focusing on all the wrong things. As soon as I get in the kitchen, I'm just so okay. Um, it's totally my therapy and, um, and using my hands. Love it. I could talk to you for hours, you know that, but it won't be on this podcast. I'll just have to Pop over <laughs> to Adelaide, come to Jam Face, or no, you, you know, need to come to my house. Give you, again, yeah, give you a call, whatever it is. And I think you should, you yeah. just have to, on behalf of all of us, keep channeling that creative soul of yours, and keep painting, and keep cooking. Yeah, and and there's a reason why you you want to feed people, and why you have to have an outlet for that. Brilliant oh, stuff. Thanks, and Barry. I like it. You got all deep and meaningful. And I'm going to jump on my motorcycle. I'm going to ride home as the sun sets. I'm going to feel the, <laughs> the wind in my hair. Um, but I'll be channeling a bit of you. Oh, thanks, Gaz. Uh, I love talking to you. And I'll speak thanks. to you soon. Thanks, Gaz. <laughs> Have a lovely evening.
And now for my tips and tricks, and these might be a few cheats and hacks uh, and flavour bombs that you might find if you go to your local Asian supermarket. You'll find me there all the time, rummaging around and finding all sorts of tasty goodies. But many people don't know that fish sauce, for example, is like olive oil. Lots of different types of fish sauce. The best one in my mind is from Fuquok. So there's one called Red Boat. Keep an eye open for that. I also love things like exo sauce, different types of soy, things like fukake seasoning, which is a Japanese nori seasoning with sesame seeds and all sorts of goodies in it that brings things like plain rice to life. Also crunchy chili sauce. I mean, you can go crazy. Another favourite thing of mine is a Korean snack, like nori, but deep fried with uh, like a tempura batter. Mm, Maybe not the healthiest thing, but absolutely delicious. So give it a go. Find all sorts of interesting things that maybe you never knew existed. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski. Audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savoury tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.